0: I'm Jonathan Wakefield, and this is the Beer Hour on SiriusXM Business Radio 132. Each week, we introduce you to the craft beer brewer or owner and someone from another field. We talk about what it takes to overcome fear, follow your passion, and become a successful entrepreneur. I'm here in the taproom with my co-host, Maria Cabre. Hello, Maria. Who's our first guest this week?
1: Our first guest left a successful 12-year career as an educator in the nation's sixth-largest school district to open a meadery in Oakland Park, Florida along with his wife, Stacy, It's the only one in Broward and Palm Beach counties. He made the leap after an award-winning run as a home brewer, mead, and cider maker. They just celebrated the grand opening of their new mead hall with the goal of educating a new market to the pleasures of the ancient elixir, a.k.a. honey wine.
0: Welcome to the Beer Hour, John Holohan. Thank you for joining us today, actually, for... actually. Getting you in here finally to uh, get you on the show—it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much. So, I guess a question I've never asked—I know we've been around a little bit. So, where did you actually grow up?
2: Uh, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, or Niagara Falls, New York area. So you're
0: not a you're not a Florida native then. Not by a trade. Floridian, but uh-huh. I've lived down here now
2: We're almost going on twenty years.
0: So, was it down here that you got introduced to mead? Like, when did you find Me- mead in like? We're not going to say it's from a renaissance fair, right? Absolutely
2: Uh, not. Uh, One of your lines, actually. Really? Miami Madness 2018. Again, bad with dates, but. uh, Really? Someone just uh, had a bottle? Absolutely. Walking up and down 24th and somebody poured something for me. and Yes, sir. (laughs) Okay. And uh, I said, what is this? And Stacy looked at me and she said, you're going to learn how to do this too. So you took that as like,
0: kind of like the aha moment.
2: It was. Um, I still had a passion for beer. Uh, I still right. love making beer. It's just, um, I looked around and saw how saturated the market in the Tri-County was. And you you so were I, smarter at that point than a lot of other people. I don't know. Some days I doubt that, <laughs> but you know, I, I appreciate the compliment nonetheless.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. We are the only meadery in Broward and Palm right. Beach. Exactly. I mean, definitely not saturated. Correct. where there is i mean i'm not saying we're new york or california or anything as far as like number of breweries but probably for what south florida is we have a maximum number of breweries you know because south florida to me is still a cocktail tone
1: yeah for the kind of market we are we're for sure saturated. no we're saturated yeah
0: no absolutely like i i think anybody that would be like yeah i want to open a brewery in south florida i think you're crazy I mean, metery is completely different. That's a different, you know, kind of scale. But I think anybody trying new or wanting to open a new one, it's tough sledding.
2: I think small business in general at this point. I no, I, yeah. I mean, for... yeah,
0: I would, that's a totally different scope, but I would absolutely agree. I think small business at this point in the state of affairs that we're in right now is not that great. I mean, I, I mean, I look around me right now and this area is not conducive for small business anymore. Like Agreed. anybody new wanted to come in if you were a mom and pop or I don't care if you were clothing line to any kind of retail, uh, bakery, you know, clothing line, brewery, whatever it may be, small business-wise, like, not going to happen. Absolutely. Uh, in
2: this area, I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. Uh,
0: but I, I think that carries over for a lot of South Florida. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, I'm not saying I don't know Broward because, obviously, I have a lot of things in Broward. But prices are also going up in Broward as well. Everywhere. So when did you actually... So, obviously, the bottle was here in line at one of our lines for for Miami Madness. When did you actually start home brewing? First in beer, and then you tried this bottle, and then you started cracking into into
2: meads? Correct. So, while I was in college, I attended a small seminar on how to brew. Really? um, In, let's see, uh, probably like 2005 or so. Okay. Um, Okay. and left that seminar with one of those kits um uh, and fortunately it wasn't all extract at that point in time it was partial mash right um came home and tried my first batch of homebrew imperial stout uh <laughs> boiled over Go bigger home or go home right boiled over on my dad's brand new concrete driveway oh boy uh, stain still exists nice you're welcome dad nice uh, and then came down here and sold all that homebrew equipment, and lived on the beach, chased that dream, moved to Florida. Right, all of that. course, yeah. Um, and then uh, got back into homebrewing when we purchased our home. Um, went a little crazy, bought the chest freezer, eight kegs, way too much beer for uh, one person that. to have in their that. house. But uh yeah. became the favorite neighbor in the neighborhood. Of course, so. you're making all the good beer. And then... Um, Started doing some local contests um, and fortunately caught some traction thanks to Lauderal as well as yourself. Right, And then uh, realized that there was this brand new thing called mead. um, And it absolutely blew my mind the first time that I had it. uh, I didn't realize that you could get that concentration of flavors into a liquid. uh, And immediately started my hand at it and failed miserably. Um, I listen to the podcast frequently and I, uh, my no, favorite no, story you're, is you're not alone. Humbles themselves yes, that yes. first time. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So at that point after obviously the bottle tasting here in line, was that when you kind of shifted to more mead at that point? And you were like, I mean, obviously you obviously saw it as a concentration and flavor, more of an idea of like a blank canvas kind of deal.
2: I liked both. Uh, I kept my foot in both aspects. Um, I love to wake up on Sunday morning and and start a mash over a cup of coffee. Uh, Mead to me was a little bit different in terms of maybe less labor intensive off of the bat, uh, but required more babysitting throughout the process.
0: Right. I think that's, I think I would agree. I mean, it's why I never really got into mead. Obviously, I think the initial process of starting fermentation is a lot easier than beer but over the long haul it's a lot more arduous and like tedious
2: i would agree with that it's uh because we're kind of banking on a lot higher abv especially with uh stagger nutrient addition right. and, and step right. feeding right uh, you're
0: you're you're unlike beer where beers you, you start with the sugar that you have and typically that's all you want and in a mead you keep feeding and feeding and feeding to hit that alcohol level that you're looking for, desired.
2: Correct, alongside with uh, residual sugar level, which uh, a lot of our people really like, some high residual sugars in our meads.
0: So you would typically, so for your meadery, you would classify it as a sack? Would that be the correct terminology? Like sack mead, sweetened mead, not dry mead?
2: So one of the things that um, we kind of gained a, a following Utilizing the high residual sugar, high ABV dessert style that uh, SRAM has made popular and and a lot of the guests that you've had on um, share that same approach. Because we are a little bit different in terms of the fact that now we have finally opened our tasting room after 22 months of construction, rezoning, etc. I realize that we can't be a one trick pony. And we have people that come in because we are a bonded winery um, and licensed winery. So right. what happens is they're coming in and they have no experience with mead, but they see wine in the description. Right. And they walk in and they want some grapes that are pressed and stepped on. I love Lucy style. So really? uh, we are trying our hand at traditional wines. We have a Zinfandel. Uh, but one of the things that I've tried to do is tone down my approach to residual sugar with our tasting room offerings. Um, so we do have some dry stuff, bone dry. Right. Um, Buzz is our bone dry, sparkling wildflower, American oak. It's fantastic. It's easy drinking. And I find that that's the first thing that I'll recommend if someone is trying to bridge that gap between I like wine and I've never had mead, but I don't want something that's sweet. Is, so,
1: is that, sorry. Is that also like a lower ABV? Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So we've also stepped down the ABV on the serum line. So serum lines are kind of similar to a Hydromel. So um, to make sense of that, a Hydromel is just a watered down version. ...of a traditional mead. To lower the ABV. Correct. Yeah. Um, So we're still trying to pack in all of that flavor that you get with a high residual sugar, high ABV mead. But we've stepped them down to about 6.97%. More approachable. Correct. The idea is someone can sit in the seat and enjoy a glass or two. Right. uh, And I don't have to have a wheelbarrow in the back to 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 take them out out to their their parking (laughs) lot at the
0: end of the day. It's funny because when we first opened... We used to serve wine, but when we would get people that were kind of new to craft beer eight years ago, our gateway to get people into craft beer was actually sours. It was actually our Berliner Weiss, the fruited Berliner Weisses, yeah. because the of lacto, the acidity the, and and the little bit of the tartness. Your
1: house lacto is a very like citrusy, lemony yeah. base, right? And not with the fruit. Put in fermentation because then the whole post-fermentation fruit edition started. Right, right. But people like that. And especially like a DFPF, they saw the color and they kind of, okay, that is kind of like wine colored. I mean, obviously brighter, but. I mean,
0: that's how we used to get people in. And once they got in, they understood and and made that switch over. But really it was the Berliners that really got them over. So I could see using that kind of bone dry-esque to really get them in the doorway that way.
2: Was your was your wife into homebrewing as well? Just tasting. <laughs> she supports all of my hobbies right, and right, passions, and, right. uh, and I appreciate her for that. Uh, she no, she does not. No, no, no tri clamps, no, no gaskets. No, no she's that not this, taking care of any of that. She's quality control. She walks around and tells me what I need to do. Oh, okay. so I, have a, I have direction. <laughs> I tell people I am the co-owner, but uh, uh, that's right, the boss over right. there. Oh. <laughs>
0: So actually, in in 2018, you won a People's Choice and Judge's Place at the Lauderdale Homebrew Competition. What was the liquid that won that competition? And was that your first award?
2: Our first venture into the contest kind of scene was Lauderdale. They did a yearly event. Um, Thinking back, I think we won People's Choice for it was a Fruited Sour. And then the the judges, I'm sorry, flip that around. Uh, we want people's choice for the stout. We won third place in judging for a fruited sour. Nice, nice. Have you have you competed with the meats? No, no. Nope. Uh, no. Just local when it came to the beer scene, uh, yeah. bouncing around. I remember your homebrew yeah. event. We brought some stouts, yeah. some barrel aged yeah. stuff. Oh yeah, people uh, love that. And we were really fortunate. Um, Actually, things, I think you won an award here for one of the stouts. People's Choice. Yeah. So one of the things we were really proud of yeah. was at every event, we were winning People's Choice. And yeah. I, I respect that. That's judging. really what matters the exactly. most. Exactly. Yeah. You know, three people mean a lot to me, but what really meant a lot was the fact that the crowd came out and supported. And I think that was one of the reasons why we were able to kind of say, hey, this might actually be a wise business decision down the road.
0: We, we competed in GABF once. 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 No, it was once and
1: because well, we talked about perhaps resubmitting because because well they because told but the, us the, the
0: tough one on that one is like you, the categories because some of our beers don't fit into categories so then you're trying to plug into play in the stuff that it may not fit in so you're taking a guess well is this the right one or not and then it can be judged harshly if they don't f- believe that it's in the right one and we did fairly well i think we made it to semifinals on a couple of beers but they never made it to the finals but i was just like you know what we didn't win any awards but we sure as hell had the longest lines of GABF out of anybody in there. So what mattered more to me was the people that were going to actually be consuming the beer on a consistent basis than a panel of, not not to uh, knock those guys, agreed. But, wholeheartedly. but what matters most, who's actually spending money on the beer, some panel of 10 judges or I, thousands of people. I hear you loud and clear. and So I, I, I can that. totally agree with, you know, where you're coming from. On that. And
1: the beauty of that is that the range of the people that go to GABF. Oh my gosh. You get yeah. like college frat guys to like the most seasoned craft yeah. beer drinkers. Yeah. So it, it was really kind of nice to see.
2: As inventory expands, um, one of the things we've been really fortunate about has been the fact that our club membership has bought every single thing that hasn't been bolted down. Nice. Um, so as we grow, And build access in terms of inventory, I would love to start submitting some things, getting some feedback, and maybe getting the name out on a more broad scale. Uh, We do have a great following locally, and then we also have a a pretty unique situation due to the fact that a lot of my friends in craft beer uh, helped us to grow organically. We have actually more members in our private club in California than we do in Florida. So uh, we're in an advantageous position, but I still feel like there's a lot of opportunity for organic growth to continue.
0: What is it? Is it the Mazer Cup? The Mazer Cup is that's the Super the Bowl of annual, Mead. correct? Yeah, right. Yeah, that's the one that right I've heard of. That's that's the big show, correct? <clears throat> that is the big show. That would be uh, interesting to see for sure. So, kind of rewind the clock, but like, so after 12 years in education like you had actually risen to a level of vice principal and district science specialist, but that's, that's a heck of a title for, for Broward County, Florida schools. (laughs) (laughs) So naturally you decided to resign to become a mead maker. Like how did you finally pull that trigger? Was it support of your wife, giving up city income and benefits to start a meadery? Like what, like what really made you pull that, that plug there?
2: Great question. So I was in the assistant principal role and really happy three years in. uh, And every weekend it was like there was something beer related, uh, an event, something. And I remember at the time my supervisor every Monday would walk into my office and say, well, what award did you win this weekend? And she looked at me one time and she goes, you're going to quit. You're going to leave me. I know it. uh Wheels were already in motion uh, because I knew that I couldn't open up an establishment that produced alcohol and still, still stay in the, work. the role that I had due to the nature of just working with children. And right. I had a pretty yeah. active PTA, and I knew that they would not be so thrilled with that. Right. So I started the process of moving into a private software company that still dealt with children's education on a consultant basis. So okay. I was able to kind of bridge that gap between I want to chase my dream, but I also have to be grounded in reality or else uh, my wife might have some issues with that. Of course, um, of course. So I kind of kept my feet in both areas. Um, during the build-out, I was still working on the software side of things and still take some shifts occasionally online. Uh, but when it came to finally starting to get opened, uh, it was nice because I still was able to have some residual income from the software of job, course, so yeah. I wasn't... Uh, uh, know, rolling loose change on the weekends. What kind of production capacity do you have? So we have two 10-barrel fermentation vessels. We have four oversized fives, and then we have two two two-barrel brights. Uh, And typically with mead, I can ferment from uh, start to terminal in just under three and a half, four weeks. Uh, So I'm flipping those tanks on basically a monthly basis. And what do you think your annual production will be? Oh, that's t- that's a tough one.
0: Um, you guys measure in gallons or barrels?
2: Uh, I do a little bit of both at this yeah. point in time. My tanks are stamp- stamped liters, but every day I'm like Google, can you translate liters to gallons?
0: It's funny though because when I opened this place, I was taught in metric, okay, and you know, and not imperial. So it's like all my conversions, even on grist ratios and stuff like that, is still kilos and liters. So <laughs> it's quite interesting. But I uh, yeah, it's. It's tough sledding on some of the like the conversion rates and stuff because it can be a nightmare.
2: So Ballpark, a, though, I would guess. say um, we're putting out around 400 gallons um, post-fermentation of high ABV dessert-style mead per month. The majority Oof. of that is going right into barrels for extended aging. Right now, um, actually on production for year three of our membership. Nice. Uh, I'm fortunate I have a lot of really organized people, and I think I take some of that science nerd approach, but also the organization that I learned from the public school system, and I apply that to just helping me see not only what I need to do in the short term, but where we're at in terms of long term. Um, The hard part to ballpark is the serum line. So what I'll do is I've built up a 10% ABV mead base, and then I build up a 10% cider base. And what I'll do is I'll knock those down to sub seven on their way into the bright where I'll carbonate and keg right. from there. So I can literally turn a product that may be a uh, thousand three hundred 300 gallons coming out of uh, my fermentation vessel. And I'll turn that into 400 gallons of product. Right. So right. Uh, you can expand that product. Correct. So right. looking at roughly, let's just say a thousand gallons a month. In low ABV and high ABV product compliance. Nice. so uh, that's awesome. Not too bad at this. No, part. that's 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 awesome, man.
0: I mean, what, I mean, I think you would agree. Meat is still a niche Absolutely. product. Yes. I mean, obviously, versus however many breweries now we have in the U.S. eight thousand, nine thousand. I I don't even know anymore. But like, and you are the only meadery in Broward, Palm Beach counties. I think there right. There's one in Miami. Correct. I know that what are the challenges from a business standpoint to selling a product that maybe the average consumer is not so familiar
2: with? Absolutely. So consumer education is, is primary for our success short term and long term. Uh, That's something I welcome with open arms due to the fact that I was in education and uh, with the software job, I, it's adult education. Right. Uh, So I've kind of written a script um, and try to best exemplify bridging gaps, between what you know and what you like and how that relates to the product line that we have. Okay. Um, nonetheless, you'll still have somebody that comes in there that may be a naysayer or, or a non-believer. And right. um, one of the things that I just say over and over is just try something. Uh, Maria had alluded earlier to um, how your Berliners um, were bridging that gap. So one of the things that I've seen recently is uh, people coming in and saying they don't like um, sugar or they don't want something super sweet or they don't like honey. And one of the things that I always kind of find myself doing is is showing them this triangle, right? And the tip of the triangle can be sweetness or residual sugar. But the bottom left corner of that triangle is tartness or acidity. And then the bottom right side of that triangle is tannin. And if those three things are well-balanced beverage itself does not feel overtly sweet right uh, we had two ladies come in on sunday and i said grab a flight start off with buzz because it is bone dry that's the base from which everything else is made and next thing you know they're drinking uh black currant boysenberry vanilla um that is one of the highest in terms of measured residual sugar readings the sweetest on, one on yeah. our yes on our roster and they looked at me and they say well we liked buzz but this one is really great. I said, oh,
0: right, because it's the balance. You also bring in the fruit and everything else, Absolutely. so it, it doesn't come off as just straight sugar. And Absolutely. That's kind of finding a balance. But I, I, I think that's not only you being kind of hit with the fact of people saying they don't want just straight sweet and sugar. I think that's coming across all boards now. Mm-hmm. Like we see it here because beer went through that major factor of like Pastry, pastry, pastry. Thick. Thick, like super residual yes. sugar stouts. Super sweet stouts that tasted like a candy bar and didn't really taste like beer anymore. Or sours that tasted like you went to Smoothie King. Yes. And not like beer. I think we're starting to see that, but that doesn't coincide. There's a difference between that and finding a balanced beverage where the fruit and everything, it's more balanced, but it's not like just just sugar bomb. Absolutely. And I think that's what people are discerning away from. You know what I mean?
2: I would like to hope so. Um, I, as much as I can appreciate um, high residual sugar, right. um, it just needs to be tamed or else it starts this right. uh, down this road that I like to refer to as flabby. And, Diabetes. And, yep, and flabby can be fixed with just a little bit of an acid. <laughs> no, absolutely. Adjustment. No, right. No, it, it, but
0: I, it, it's that, but it, it's like cooking. You yes, know what I mean? Yeah. It's like cooking. A hundred percent. It's like cooking. Like, fat, I mean, you don't want sweet, something that salting. just tastes like salty. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. You want this balance, you know, and it's hard to hit notes even when you're cooking of all, all the tastes because yeah. that's almost impossible. But to have a balance, sweet and sour or salty and, and you know, sweet, you know, like kind of, which you don't like, right? <laughs> it depends. Just because I
1: don't like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Oh, my God.
0: That's a crime. doesn't
1: mean it's a crime that I don't like sweet and salty. But I think the other thing that really helps you is your background in like childhood education because you have to literally break it down like you would to a child. To adults,
0: right? Not saying not saying that adults have the mind of a child, but it's it's that form of education because we had to do it as well because people came in here and had no idea what craft beer was.
1: But as we get older, we get more like closed off.
0: No, you absolutely children you close the doors.
1: are much more open. So of course, sometimes you have receptive. to break it down. Like I mean, that. I,
0: I look at my kids. Yeah, you know, trying new things. You know what I mean? They're much more open to things. And they don't, like, they're I, not scared. I, you hit forty five years old, you are not like doing that anymore. You are no. like, no, I am not doing that. You know. But I, I can see where you're coming from on that. I do have one kind of final question for you in this. is far, like, What advice would you give someone who's in a similar situation that you were in, great career, having success, and they have this kind of burning passion to jump into something else like, is, that is far less secure? I mean, we can be
2: honest. Yes, absolutely.
0: You know what I mean? what would your advice be for those people?
2: I think this was all, uh, attributed to watching way too many Gary V videos. Oh. Uh, <laughs> so I think life's short, right? Absolutely. And it's important to be cautious when you're taking any degree of risk. Right. But most important is making sure that you have the support and understanding of, of whomever you're with my wife, Stacy and I, this wouldn't be possible if, if she didn't believe, um, I would also say just make sure that you're calculated. Um, Everybody knows that this is a risk, uh, but I think that when you work with the right people, whether that's contractors or leaning in on just a a social network of fantastic people like you and Maria, uh, people open up doors for you. And I think that one of the interesting parts of, of craft beverage in general is everyone wants everyone to be successful. And there's never been a point where I've approached somebody and said, Hey, I'm struggling with this. What do I do? And they're closed off. Right. Um, So my advice to somebody is just make sure you understand that there's going to be more sacrifice than you would ever imagine. Um, I was tailing the number of hours that I worked last week. Huh. Uh, not that I'm going to get a paycheck for that, right. but just simply because I wanted to benchmark where I'm at. And it's they're 80-hour weeks. Oh, yeah. Um, and oh. and it's okay with me because I'm chasing a passion that, right. that it doesn't feel like work. Right. Uh, but I sure go home tired some days.
0: No, you, you go home tired. And at that point, work also follows you home. Unlike a normal nine-to-five job or somebody just that works at a brewery as an employee, it's completely different because that follows you home. Follows you home on your phone, in your brain, like just, you know. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that come with it. But really, if it's a passion, then it's worth the risk. Absolutely. I agree with that. You know, it's worth the risk. You know what I mean? It's worth the stress. It's worth the headaches. It's just you got to keep pushing forward so you don't become stagnant and fall out of love with that thing.
2: And I think one of the the coolest parts of, of mead is I watch people on a daily basis have the exact same expression that I had on your line right. 10 years ago. Right. And you see their eyes light up and they go yeah. from perhaps a naysayer or an uninformed consumer to, wow, I didn't realize that this could do this. And I said, right. that's the face I made. And I think that's,
0: probably a very favorable thing for me because it is so niche that a lot of people don't know so you can still educate whereas I think now in the days of craft beer we're now looking for that niche and how to attract and draw people back in because it has been so expanded and it's so well known now what's going to draw that people in what's going to bring in that that look what's going to cause that now so I think that's the new hunt for us is like, what's going to cause that?
2: I think that's the inner dialogue for like every single business owner is what, is, what do I need to pivot to? Because right. Right. if we were still trying to make product that was popular 16 months ago, well, we right. know that the work in terms of barrel aging a stout or creating right. a high EBV mead, the things that I made yesterday, were not going to drink for 12 to 16 months. So right. I need to think, you were just pre- saying not to. And today. predict patterns yeah. of consumerism. And right. it's an unlikely or an uncharted territory.
0: Well, right. I mean, because we were just talking about this this morning, because I got to take a beer, uh, Imperial Stout, out of a tank. Well, that beer's not ready to drink for a year. Yeah. So, so it's an, what are we doing upfront, in the meantime?
1: In, it's an upfront investment.
0: <clears throat> yeah. What are we doing in the meantime? So. But thank you very much for joining us, man. This has been awesome. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to come down here and speak with us.
2: Thank you so much for the opportunity, John Maria. Thank you.
0: You're listening to The Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield. Conversations on the business of brewing and popular culture.
1: In 2014, our next guest started dreaming of bringing the perfect donut to their hometown of Miami. An epic road trip ensued. They visited some of America's most iconic donut shops for inspiration. They returned home, and before long, they were struggling to serve lines of passionate fans through the window of their vintage camper on a vacant city lot. The Salty was born. Eight brick-and-mortars later, life is sweet for this wife and husband duo as they seek to spread the word about the transformative power of a really freaking good donut.
0: Welcome, Amanda and Andy Rodriguez. Thank you for joining us here on the Beer Hour, and thank you for... I guess walking about a block over <laughs> to be on the show. Short walk. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it's actually good to have you guys in the tap room. I think it's something we're striving for actually to get back to having more guests here in person. So thank you very much for joining us in
3: person. Yeah. yeah. It's been a long time that we haven't done a lot in person. So yeah. happy to do whatever we can in person. I
0: think the last time I actually saw you guys in person, it's been, it's been a while. Years. Years. Yeah. When I first met you guys, you guys were entrepreneurs
3: anyway. What made you kind of jump into doing donuts? That's a great question. So I was in primarily automotive startups or only automotive, automotive startups before Salty. Like but, um, companies? Yeah. So like manufacturing of high performance wheels, manufacturing oh. of carbon fiber product stuff like so that. So you like were in the aftermarket, aftermarket parts. Yeah. So aftermarket
0: did parts. you dive into that when, uh, what was it, Fast and the Furious 2 came down uh, here? Is that even, when you d- d-
3: dove in? Paul Walker, <laughs> I, you know, in Miami? I don't even know. What, what year was that? That was early 2000s. Early 2000s. So, yeah. I mean, I've always been into cars, so I was definitely right. into cars in the early 2000s. You was
1: probably still in high school. I was like, <laughs>
3: so know, was I. I don't know, probably. Now I don't do anything to my car. <laughs> just drive it around. Same. Now no. I'm like, whatever comes from factory, just leave it alone. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> you don't need exhaust. You oh don't need carbon God. fiber, this or that. And before, you're oh, just, like just hacking them, hacking
0: oh, up to pieces. I mean, I did a full motor swap, <laughs> full <laughs> transmission, full <laughs> suspension. I've done oh everything. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, so kind
3: of weird to go from cars to donuts. But food was the passion. Automotive was the business, entrepreneurial right. side. So Salty was the first time where, like, basically mashed together the, the passion with the "Quote unquote expertise, right? Like my expertise, let's call it quote unquote, was just small companies, like startups. Right, right. Because
0: right. When, when we first met, that's what you kind of introduced yourself as was uh, entrepreneurs. Yeah, for sure. Right, right.
3: So it was taking my passion, which has always been food, since I was like six years old, right, and marrying it to what I was doing, which was entrepreneurship. And then Amanda, similar, like she's always been about food.
4: Yeah, I was more about food than <laughs> entrepreneurship because I was still in school. But you guys are in great shape I for the, being I always I in the, food, so I got let's the food talk. You know. I, <laughs> I,
3: I
1: think, think they work out like twice a day. We, we
3: literally have to work out. Uh, it, to it's actually food kind food. of obnoxious. What's the
1: wine too, girl. Yeah, right. yeah. it's the wine too. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. That's
3: a problem. But we're like very much about we work out and it's obnoxious because we work out so much and like, Barely ever see any progress because we eat and it's drink It's fine, so but much, you're but. enjoying <laughs>
1: your life. So, yeah. It's,
3: yeah. as long as we just keep it the as same. As long as you keep the balance going, you're and fine. And it's what We're you good. like. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. yeah, So,
1: who decided on donuts? Like, how did you guys hone in on that?
0: Well, I mean, I think you guys, you you took like a cross-country expedition. Mm-hmm. Right? There was.
3: Yeah. There was. Bef- so, before the expedition, it was, it's, it was pretty simple. It's just every time we ever traveled, us two, just dating, our family, whatever, we'd end up somewhere and... See these, you know, incredibly different donut shops to what we knew because in South yeah. Florida back then we just had Dunkin', and, like Krispy Kreme. No, there were no,
0: I guess, craft right. donut shops yeah. Yeah. in yeah. Miami. Right,
3: right, right, and so we would be in these places and see these lines of people for these places, and we started to go to them, and we're like, man, like they kind of suck, yeah. you know, or or the or the product is good, but everything else kind of sucks. Right. Experience is not good or the place is tiny and there's nowhere to sit down or the
1: branding sucks. The branding mm. sucks.
3: Yeah. There's no coffee product. It was always something wrong with it and we just started to talk like ad nauseum about if we were to do it how would we have done it different. And then that just that was like the first time was we like the what if question. The hey, what, what if. if what yeah, if? what if we did it? How would we have done it? And like that just kept the conversation going to the point of just being obsessed with the idea till we decided like well what if it was a business and then that's when we decided to take the donut pilgrimage to figure out all right so let's go to the top top dogs and see what they're doing how many did you hit I have, I don't even know how many the
1: donut pilgrimage <laughs> well, I mean, mean you should make like a shirt with the donut pilgrimage <laughs> like but stars, a salty the, it's like a yeah. world tour you know what
4: I mean it's pretty serious yeah. it, you definitely will get a stomachache because I I did I got pretty sick I got yeah. pretty sick because we hit like four in one day that's when we were in California Ooh, yeah. And that I wouldn't recommend. I wouldn't recommend
3: that. (laughs) Probably 20 more, 20, 30. It was a lot. Total. total. total.
0: Yeah. So, but then you guys came back. Yep. I mean, obviously with inspiration. Yep. And you guys purchased a 1950s camper?
3: Yeah. So the only part between those two things is we do the donut pilgrimage to try to figure out Basically to create a business plan right, and be obviously. like, how do we reverse engineer what these places are doing in revenue? You can't really figure it out unless you just sit there for hours and you just try to count transactions on different days of the week.
4: Which we did try.
3: Which we, Yeah, which we did try. And we put it all together and you know, you go look at the business plan and it was all completely wrong, but that doesn't matter. The point was we got to taste, we got to see, we got to write a bunch of notes, collect a bunch of data right. and create a business plan, Which are, which we deduced from the business plan. We think this could be a viable business if we can just have Mm -hmm. volume, right? And so we just, then we went for it and bought the camper and decided to do it as a pop-up first just to have a low cost um, to try to get it off the ground.
0: Obviously, you weren't making donuts in the camper. The camper was more of a service station. That's correct. Right. So you guys were working out of a commissary. A commissary. And it
4: was about 45 minutes away, a shared commissary kitchen where you just like rent the time. Which is
0: actually a good thing because I think it's how a lot of people kind of got off the ground. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, because... If you didn't, weren't 100% sure in your business plan and we're testing the waters, you operate kind of out of a commissary to see and test the waters 100%. Off, without having to buy a brick and mortar. Yeah, I mean, it,
3: we, could, we right. didn't even have the money to do it even if, if we wanted to. But even if we did, failing that bad, if it wouldn't have worked and spending, whatever, a million dollars to build a brick and mortar facility with kitchen and grease trap and exhaust right. hoods would have been way too much. So we're like, let's start small. And then the problem was as we ramped up, since we were paying by the hour... The bigger we got, the more production we had. You're spending then it was seven too much. times <laughs> more than right. rent if you had right. your own place. Exactly. You know? that, then that, that that's when you flip it to the to, right. the, to doing it right, yourself, right? Because you're eating up so much time there. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Correct.
1: Yeah. So I know you like cooking. So who? Any of you have baking experience or
4: baking was always just something that like. I mean, I always did it growing up, and I would have, like, fake bake sales with my family, <laughs> and, um, I was more Thunder into, like, cakes, oh, yeah, I was not more into the taxes cake. on it. <laughs> hey, whatever, <laughs> cash only. No, I was, um, like, the more, like, fondant, like, cutesy cakes, and, I mean, it's still trending now, but right back then, when it was, like, a really big thing, like, Toy Story cakes, whatever, and I was, like, 16 years old, like, selling it to people, um, but it was just, like, something I liked. Now, I, like, barely bake, I guess, because it's <laughs> now my life, but, um, I think cooking and baking, just being in food in general, both helped us out in in creating Salty, like our palates.
0: So I think you guys started around the same time we did. Or was it like 2014? I think right after. We were were after. You guys were first. Right behind us. Well, because I remember you guys being set up in the camper in Mm -hmm. the lot right down the road. Yep. Yep. And it was kind of open, like it was still that parking lot, but that's where you guys would set up. And how many days a week were you operating out of there?
3: So three. So we started December of 2015 was the first time we okay we started. So a pop-up. yeah, you would have been after us. Yep. Yeah. And it was Friday, Saturdays, and Sundays. And I we, we would we open at like 11.
4: Yeah, we would uh, Friday was like 11 p.m. No, sorry, 7 p.m. and close at 11 p.m. And then you know Saturday and Sunday. But I always remember like after the pop up would close, remember we would come over here and grab and a beer. beer. Yeah, every I was time. like, all right, we're done. Here's yeah, time for a we, beer. It was
3: really weird. We started. Like our first ever time open, we were it was nighttime. I don't know if you guys remember that. It was only nighttime. Yeah. And we did it for like two weeks. And we're like, this is a horrible idea. Why yeah. are we doing <laughs> this? Donuts don't make sense nighttime. Really, no. So then we started doing it daytime. But yeah. uh, it started off just nighttime. And then a few weeks after, it flipped to morning but it wasn't even like super early morning either it was probably like 10 o'clock no it
1: was like 10 i remember yeah. right because we wait for donuts we'd text you and we'd be like hey yeah. what do you guys have <laughs> today yeah. can you hold us a box us a
4: yeah, I
3: remember. Yeah. and then we'd finish the shift and just come here and pound beers it was awesome and yeah. we lived like three blocks away back then so we would just like yeah mosey on home after
4: we're always here
3: it's crazy
0: so before we go any further i mean donuts are basically broken into two styles right
1: yeast and cake.
0: Yeast and cake, yep. but you guys are brioche.
3: Yeah, we're brioche on the it's still yeast raised. It's still yeast. Oh, it's yeah. still yeast, yeah. right. But it's it's different than like a standard it's, yeast raised
0: donut. Is as you say, what is it a laminated dough? Uh,
1: brioche is not.
0: No, it's not. No. no. All right, so I'm off on that one. That
1: will be a croissant. <laughs> yeah. yeah, a croissant. A
3: croissant a croissant. Is, uh, laminated. So, why brioche? Um because we felt like if we were to do Okay, let's backtrack. Of all the donuts we got to taste when we were doing all this stuff, a lot of the donuts that are a quick, like a quick yeast donut are very fluffy and airy, but not in a way that has a bite, more in a way that like it almost squishes in your mouth. It has like a chew. Like yeah. a chew, yeah. and then you have to like tear it with it's your mouth. And like flavorless. And, and it's like kind it, of flavorless. And it
1: doesn't hold well over... A, a day right
3: yeah. right and it just has really no flavor it's just whatever you stick on top of it or you fill it with right. so our thought was to create something that even at its most basic form like just standard vanilla glaze right. that the dough would taste like something and so whenever we eat i don't know whatever a sandwich of this or that doesn't matter we just love the way that brioche tastes because it's eggy and buttery and just awesome you know it's, delicious. what else do you need <laughs> it's in life delicious. butter and eggs <laughs> Uh, So the (laughs) fact that it's got that butter and egg forwardness just lends itself really well to doing all sorts of stuff. And then now we even do like in Texas, we have savory options, but it's it's still using our standard brioche because it it can go savory. It could go sweet. It could could be baked. It could be baked. You could do all sorts of stuff. Yeah, we've turned it into croissants. We've turned it into bread uh, bread loaves. (laughs) you've done a lot. All sorts of stuff.
0: You've done a lot. Which donuts do you think in the early days really resonated with your followers at that time? I mean... I remember from the jump, it was, for me, it would have been the maple bacon. Yep. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Mine was Boston cream. Boston oh. cream. Yeah. Classic. Which back yeah. then, it was like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> it was damn good.
3: Oh, man, it was good. I, I would say, like, the white chocolate that is leches was definitely something different that no one had seen. Yeah. um, In the guava? Guava and cheese was something no one had. Well, not that no one had seen, but no one had seen in a donut. donut. Yeah. You know, it was one like was a donut classic donut. basilito flavor that right. we're from Miami, you know, we're Cuban-American, so, like, it just made sense. And then obviously maple bacon, which was always a hit. And we did like a super different take because everyone would just do, you know, like a maple bar or whatever, or a bacon bar and just put like this floppy piece of bacon on top. Yeah. Yeah. That looked like a, like air airplane bacon that they give you for (laughs) breakfast, you know, terrible. So we were like, we would candy it and it was crunchy, but it was sweet, but it was salty. It was, it was a great flavor. So we've had waffle tacos and Ted burgers, guys that
0: like have started as pop-ups
4: not yet brick and mortars.
0: Not yet brick and mortars. How did you guys make that transition? Let's see.
4: Well, so we had actually signed our lease when our camper was open. And that's why when everybody would come to the camper and say, when are you opening? When are you opening? We would giving a date of like, it was. we were way off. But um, we were like, oh, we're going to be opening across the street in a brick and mortar. But that store was really built off of... I'm honestly like credit cards and borrowed money from our family. (laughs) (laughs) So it's nothing like our build outs now. You got it done. (laughs) But it's basically, yeah, we just got it done. I wish we we could do
1: it for what we did it for
3: back then. (laughs) We look back and we're like, wait, how was this even possible? You know,
4: (laughs) especially
1: (laughs) like during and after the pandemic. Yeah, that's true. Like the freight is ridiculous. Exploded.
3: Our build outs are like 30% more than they were before. We buy coconut.
1: Coconut is much more expensive now.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I'm just like, Everything. Yeah, and it's tough because then it's, like, ha- harder now for people to enter this kind of, like, market, like, industry. Like, before, I don't know, it was, like, it's it was way easier, oh, little mom and pop, and trying to make their way. But it's, like, everything requires just so much money now and, like, yeah. Yeah. resources and tons of competition. It's it's a rough world out there.
1: <laughs> yep. Did you see the same faces at the brick-and-mortar location as you did at the camper? Or did you also see, like, newer once like once the salty kind of started spreading the wildfire, you know, because I remember some of those lines.
3: Yeah, it was crazy.
1: Being ridiculous.
3: I would say we definitely saw a lot of the of similar faces or same faces. And then it, when we went to brick and mortar, we went from three days to six and we started opening way earlier. So it was just like a new demographic of people that would, weren't able to go to the pop up, started to go to the store. 'Cause it was earlier, it was weekdays. So like it opened up to a whole right. nother realm of, of demographic. And
1: you had a lot more coffee options at that time. Way as more well. coffee
3: options, yeah. way more donuts too. We only yeah. had like, I think five or six at the yeah. pop up and yeah. then way we more went, to, everything. went to twelve. <laughs> um, and it's also funny because we talked to people about the lines and like you know, we were in that mess, like trying to charge people and a man is boxing donuts. We didn't even have like a ticket printer, it was crazy. And then we look at the, the number of transactions that we process now, right? And like you go to a store and unless it's like a crazy launch date or a holiday or whatever, there's barely ever a line, but we're processing the same number of transactions. So we look, we go back and we're like, dude, we were so we were slow so back slow. then. <laughs> like it took, everything Ugh. took you so much time. Yeah. yeah, you were
4: green. We had no idea what that we were Everything doing. took
3: so much time. There was no delivery. There was no, uh, you know, go order ahead for pickup. Like that stuff just makes you move so much faster. Um, yeah. But anyway, it's funny.
0: <laughs> what was your first location outside of miami
3: outside of miami was dallas yeah. which was Dece- uh Sorry, not december uh june of 2020 yeah. right yeah right yeah. in the middle of covid <laughs> yeah totally sure. that go over. well it was Wild. actually
4: supposed to open february or yep. like literally it was like march like right when i guess you could say covid was announced and so everything was done we we're we had a a crazy uh like pr campaign actually like The Dallas Mavericks were going to come and, like, have this huge donut dinner with us and everything. And literally, like, the very next day, everything had to get canceled. Mm -hmm. And then the store had to be put on hold until – and everybody was hired, but we put – Kept everybody, put them on hold until in June. We were like, okay, that's it. Like we can't do this yeah, anymore. Yeah, we had we the whole to staff open. hired yeah. and everything. So it was we crazy. had we the way we opened was we just closed all the doors and like installed this little window so customers could like walk up, but they weren't able to enter the store for like I don't know, like a whole year. Oh, oh yeah. the
1: yeah. yeah. Dallas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> everyone was like, I don't really understand this. You brought but, the Cuban style yeah. to Dallas. <laughs> exactly, I love but it. We know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So which one of you guys wants to run through all of your current locations and your possibly future locations?
1: They never announced the future ones like oh, this. Oh, no,
3: it's thoughts. You or it's me. thoughts. You got it. I do it. Yeah. All right, let's see. Wynwood, which is the original. Yeah. Then we opened South Miami. Then came Dallas, Texas. Then came Orlando, Florida. Then came Austin, where, Texas. Where in Orlando? Uh, Winter Park. Oh, nice. Or, or it's Audubon nice. Park, but it, Audubon nice. Park abuts Winter okay. Park.
1: Orlando, Austin.
3: Austin, West Palm, uh, Clyde Warren Park, which is a park in Dallas. Uh, sort of like their central park. They basically built a park on top of like a highway. Anyway, so that's Clyde Warren Park. Uh, and then Charlotte, North Carolina opened in January of this year. That was the last one. So how many total you got? Eight.
0: Eight. Yeah, And what are you thinking about more?
3: Uh, for sure, yeah. So of ones we've, <laughs> well, of ones we've announced so Duh, far. Look
1: at how crazy we
4: were. It's
3: like... <laughs> So well, well, I mean,
4: in build out right now, um, it's two in Tampa. Yep. which we're both announced. Yep. Um,
3: where in Tampa you got them? Uh, one in Hyde Park Village, okay, and then the other one in Seminole Heights, oh, yep.
0: which is a up and coming area. Yeah, if it was there when I was at uh, Cigar City, I'd say no. Now <laughs> I'd say yes.
3: And and it's more also of our our commissary for the market. So that one's kind of the only one we've done where it's it's more of like a a retail commissary. So it's really just there for the purpose of baking. But right. we are also opening the doors, and you can you can come and order there. But it might be, like, limited coffee menu, more limited hours. Yeah, the front house is very small Very there. small. Hyde Park is the one that's really leading the market there. Yeah. Um, what else we got? We're under construction. or about to turn over and open Buckhead in Atlanta. Oh, jeez. Okay. Um, okay. What else? Crock uh, Street. Street. in Atlanta.
4: And Midtown Atlanta. So Atlanta's the first. Three? Three. First, yeah. th- we're doing three, and they're probably all going to be a couple months apart. Yep,
3: <laughs> yep. Coconut Grove. We're, in, we're under construction in the Grove. Uh, under construction in Houston.
4: That one, we haven't announced. Haven't announced. There you go. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> hey, breaking on the yeah. beer hours. you hour. guys live in Texas?
3: <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Do you have another
4: house
1: there? Yes. Oh, my we gosh. We should at this point. Texas
3: is awesome, man. I love Texas. Yeah, I would say besides Florida, I
0: would, Texas.
3: It's awesome. Yeah. It's great out there. And the, the community is so supportive and, like, they got it. You know, Dallas took a little bit of time to ramp up and really understand the concept and now it's ripping. But Austin, just like from day one, was just Close like, jump. this is sick, we love it, and just madness.
4: But well, Austin vibes like that. It does yeah. vibe I mean,
1: like
3: that.
0: barbecue, everything else down there, it's yeah. kind of yeah. like that. It's, and we have like a that. really good location there. And we have yeah. a really yeah. good location, yeah. too, yeah. Do you own all the, lo- the locations, or are you some of them franchised?
3: Uh, we They're all corporate-owned, uh, corporate-operated, uh, corporate okay. I should okay. say. Yep. So all of, we operate and own all of them. Uh, we only own the real estate in two of them. Was three, but we just sold one. So we own the real estate in Orlando, uh, where our store is, and we own half of the real estate where our store is opening in Houston. Oh wow! Um, so, but everything else is, is leased. But yes, no, no franchising.
1: Um. So, Amanda, community betterment and social impact are a big part of your mission. What does that look like on a day-to-day basis?
4: Pretty much um, for me. So when we first started Salty, I think. We had a couple goals. One of just how we want to treat the employees, uh, you know, of our team, and then two was how we want to change all the communities that we're in. So we like to say, even now, like it's like we're eight stores and we're in different cities, and we're gonna we're almost doubling in size this year. It's like how can we become what we like to say the local national, which basically means when we embed ourselves in a city, we don't just want to be like, oh, here we are, in a place from Miami. It's like how do we in a, interact with the community and what they're doing. Um, and so I think that that's a way that our social impact has become greater because we just connect more with everybody in every city. And so for us, it's constantly researching and us, I say now, cause our marketing team is like three people. So it's just like constantly seeing, um, what matters to each city and it's all different. And then we have our national campaigns, of course, that we repeat. So like Movember, um, that's, you know, Men's health awareness and then breast cancer awareness. So um, autism awareness, all these things that on a national level we repeat because it's just something that, you know, is close to our hearts. Resonates with everyone. Exactly. And then uh, we do, which some things don't even make it to Instagram, but just little like local uh, events and things that we do to improve and put ourselves in the community. Yeah, so. and
3: that's not like on the, you know, like, social impact, and obviously we're always, like, raising money to, for, to, to donate or creating a special donut that the proceeds go to whatever. That's all stuff on, like, the social impact side. And then yeah. on the community side, um, we really try to program our stores everywhere, all over the the, the country where we have them, <clears throat> to ingrain themselves in the community, so like you know, Saturdays and Sundays could be a, a bike ride or for a cycling club led by Specialized. Yeah, and it's
4: very and ironic. We love doing. It's a lot of fitness like stuff, fitness, which is interesting.
3: Yeah. Run clubs, you know. No, uh, I don't think I don't think that's crazy
0: because it's what you we, guys we, like too. Oh no, yeah, it's also true. We've been in part, a part of and involved with a lot of fitness stuff. And right. Yeah. But it's, it's like,
1: the, it's
4: you, you know what I mean? Like, and as, right, we as hold, business owners. Yeah, I mean, we used to hold
0: wads. You know, yeah. Property, yeah. Yeah. So. I remember. Yeah. Right. It's yeah, just because yeah.
4: like, yeah. I think the balance too. I mean, we, I mean, you guys do it too, but sell, we sell, luckily we sell products that just make people happy. And like, it's like right. uh, not even hard to market just because it's something that is naturally like makes people happy and enjoyment. So it's like, why not after you finish your run or whatever and enjoy and treat yeah. yourself. Like you work so. hard. You play hard. You yeah. Know? yeah. Yeah.
0: So do you think it's tougher to be involved in the community when you open in a new city than that of one you're familiar with, like Miami?
3: Uh, I think it depends on the city, but I, I think our approach is just you go to a new city humbly and you go to a new city really working hard to try to ingrain yourself in that community and not do it in a way that's very fake, but do it in a way that's very real. And so like... When we go open in a new city, so many different people from our team are spending time there and they're just connecting with business owners. They're understanding the market, they're understanding what they want, what they don't want. And so when we open the store, even from the way it's designed, we really try to make it so that it's, it's, it's appealing to and makes sense for the people that are there. So we never want to just shove down someone's throat, like, we're South Florida founded and based and we're going to open in your city and like, you're right. going to like it. You know, we really spend a lot of time to figure out. How do we make their menu special for them? How do we make the store special for them? How do we connect with different collaborators in the market? You know, all that kind of stuff. And so
4: it's not easy. It's you not know, easy. It's, not it's a easy, lot of work. But what happens, all of the research and time we spend and money we spend makes it easier.
3: Exactly. <laughs> it makes it easier. And so it makes the people feel like, oh, this is dope. You know, like this is something cool coming to my town. That's yeah. what we want. What we don't want is this is something that's not from here coming here. Right. You know, oh, so I got you. It's, I got you. it's work, but it's, it's really rewarding. Thousands of loyal fans,
0: you got eight locations, tons of national media buzz, all in less than eight years. What do you think has been the key to your rapid growth?
3: I think there has to be more than one for sure. I think it's. Well, besides the donuts. I think. So, first, I think product has to be. Well, donuts is right, yeah. yeah. I think your customer service and your guests sentiment has to be right. And even when it's not right and you screw it up, which happens all the time, that you really go above and beyond to try to make it right for the guest. Um, And then I think we just tried to create something that didn't really exist. And I think that's probably one of the reasons that people resonate with it, because it's something that has, as a category, donuts are usually, has always been a cheap, kind of dirty, grab-and-go, yep. like unhealthy thing. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, exactly. So we How were like, you? <laughs> no, that's the true, hot and fresh
0: it's sign like, like, hey, I used to buy them yeah. for a quarter in high school and they were, so <laughs> <you know, laughs> greasy and hot and, and awesome. sugary, yeah.
3: And so when we flipped that and said, okay, well, we're going to do it in like a really polished way with like beautiful stores that you could sit in and you have an amazing coffee program that goes with it and all these other things, um, it, it was sort of became like a separate category. So I think people resonate with the fact that it's different. They resonate with the fact that the quality is there, the guest sentiment is there, and then we just package that all together with a really strong brand mm-hmm. and a really strong brand presence that makes people feel really good. And so, you know, that's, I think that's just the combo of all those things together resonated with people.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time today, thank guys. You guys. I know you're you busy people. Yeah, yeah no, all good. You through. guys too. And
3: I appreciate uh, it.
0: This has been a good one. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys. That's it for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, John Houlihan, Amanda and Andy Rodriguez, our co-host, Marie Cabre, our producer, Rocco Riggio, and our editor, Brian O'Connell. Thank you for listening. You can catch us each Friday at our new time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on Business Radio 132 or any time on the SiriusXM app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate the show and leave a review. Remember, people, the thirst is real.